Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom. This is Dreaming in Color. I've known Rhonda since we were both in high school, which despite our youthful glows was quite a long time ago. She was fighting the good fight empowered by a contagious sense of joy then, and that is remaining the same. She's a fellow Louisiana native and francophone, a queer black mother, she's an inquisitive writer, fierce advocate of justice, and teacher to all. An award-winning education entrepreneur and public speaker, she began her career researching and teaching language immersion in schools across the U.S., from Louisiana to New York. An expert in navigating and communicating across cultures, Rhonda founded several organizations dedicated to investing in our youth and our collective future, the St. Louis Language Immersion Schools being a brilliant example of such institutions. She received an Eisenhower Fellowship for International Leadership, which led her to conduct research in minority language instruction and teacher education internationally, including France, New Zealand, and Finland. She would channel her findings and her general brilliance into launching a blog entitled One Question, where she dove hard-hitting topics around system and policy reform and talks with education leaders and experts. Most recently, she founded Beloved Community, a dynamic organization devoted to creating sustainable paths toward equitable schools and communities. She earned her bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis and her master's in French studies from NYU and serves on the boards of Ed Navigator, That School Agile Learning Center, and the Diverse Charter Schools Coalition. Et comme on dirait chez nous, soyez la bienvenue, Ronda. Faites comme chez vous. So excited to talk with you. Thank you for making time. And as you know, Rhonda, we like to start things off with a bit of an invocation, which is set the space. So pass it to you. Go for it. Yes. I appreciate this so much and love just having the time to think about what I wanted to say to set this space. I think when we first started talking about the podcast was before Bell Hooks passed. And so this means even more to me in the aftermath of that transition. So in All About Love, Bell Hooks writes, the individuals who are part of that beloved community are already in our lives. We do not need to search for them. We can start where we are. We can begin our journey with love. And love will always bring us back to where we started. And that is beautiful. Mother Bell Hooks always offered some words for us to live by. Always, always. Speaking of the people always being there and the people being there already, I wanted to start off by full disclosure. Rhonda, I was sitting back to thinking through when we first met. And we first met the summer of 91. And I'm going to be honest, I am too afraid to even do that calculation. Don't do it. Don't do it. telling anybody how long ago that was. We were both teaching in Uptown New Orleans. I was hardly a year or two older than our students. You were hardly a year too older than me. And there you were in rhinestone studded cat eye glasses. And easily yes. the coolest black person I'd ever met, which says more about me than it does about you. And I just remember that from the first time we ever met. Uh, you just radiated joy. And it's something I, I remember and I hold with me. And so I just wanted to kick it off by asking you, Rhonda, where does that joy come from? I know it don't come from Lafayette. So don't give me that. Stop. What is that <laughs> Stop. Look, it came. This is my lineage. This is my birthright. My grandmother, Jessie Mela de Celestine literally birthed that joy into us and into everything we do. I really, I think you know this about me. I credit her for so much of my inspiration in life. But the idea that even in pain, even in struggle, even in really not knowing what the answers are for the next meal, for the next bill, for the next career move, there is joy, there is beauty. And the opportunity that we have to stay centered in that joy is something that nobody can take from us, right? You might lose the house, you might lose the job, you might lose the 
external lover. But if you keep this piece, that's what you get to carry forward. So yeah, I definitely hold on to that. And there and there are ways, this grandmother passed when I was 14. And so there are ways that transitioning from living with her to then living with my mom have really impacted the way that I parent my own children, right? And there's a joy and a silliness in just waking people up in the morning and in putting them to bed at night and dancing in the kitchen and making up a song because you have to go and change the laundry. Like we really live into those daily small moments of joy. No, I love that. I think what's most people, I lost my grandparent. I, well, I, had, I was raised by all four of my grandparents because my parents were working, right? So your, your grandparents were here. And I lost both my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother within six months of each other. And it's interesting because it's funny how when you think about those folks are in many ways placeholders for things that you are, that are really important to you in life and things that you hold on to. And, you know, I love hearing you talk about this joy piece because in many ways that was something that you needed in your life. Uh, something that was important to who you are as a person and having that person as a placeholder that you can hold on to becomes a really formative way of thinking about your upbringing and crediting them for that as well. Yeah. I mean, I literally, you know, I have this whole parallel life in dance community and studying dance and performing dance. And and even though I never did these dance forms with my grandmother, I absolutely feel her in the space with me, right? To be in community, to be dancing with women who are 20, 30 years older than I am has always been a way to return home, a way to re-experience the closeness of my grandmother with me. Yeah, we absolutely hold on to it. Yeah. We're going to come back to the dance. I didn't have that on my list, but I got to talk about that as well. What I do want to jump into now is, you know, early experiences in French studies and education, mm-hmm. your connection to la francophonie. Bah oui, bah oui. I would love to hear how you know, that has shaped your approach to the work, your life perspective, your understanding of education, equity, all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for me, the connection to la francophonie is absolutely deeply personal and familial, right? It was still growing up with these same grandparents who all spoke French and Creole at home and learned to speak English in school. In Lafayette, they were the last generation who really lived their full lives in language. And it's it's been filtered down since then. So we're in this language revitalization space, right? We're, we're children of Codophile, the Conseil pour le développement de français en Louisiane. And it'll be interesting to, to me how my own children, who are also bilingual, how they live into that, right? I very much want to be somebody's old Creole mommy. I want the grandkids to come and spend summers with me. And, you know, we do all of that good stuff in French. But what it did for me, because I didn't, when I made the commitment that I would be bilingual, that I would raise my children in my language, I didn't have any sense that that would impact my career, my vocation, my studies, and where it led me to, and and particularly the work that we do today, right, is to really have this really constant lens around language justice and language as another way that folks get marginalized within communities, whether that's a school community or a work community or, or housing community. And so being able to have the conversation with folks about, oh, yeah, we've done all of the outreach. We've been doing all of our community engagement and these families just don't show up. We're like, well, did you actually do this outreach to them in their language? And it's like a light bulb goes off. They're like, oh, it never occurred to us that we could blank. We worked with a school in a community that is historically uh, Chicanx and has new waves of Latinx immigrants and new arrivals every year. When we sat down with the school and started talking through like, what are your needs? What are the pain points your community is experiencing, particularly in COVID? How do you keep doing community engagement when now things have moved into this virtual realm? Um, They named things that we heard from other schools all over the country. 
when we actually then went to do focus groups with them, we're like, oh, and when we plan this out, we said, look, we can do these focus groups in Spanish for your Spanish dominant families. Help us understand not just, yes, we can have Spanish families in a focus group, but which countries are they from so that we can make sure that we're using the Spanish that actually resonates with them and isn't offensive to them in our facilitation. What happened though, as a result, so we start facilitating these focus groups, some in Spanish, some in English, same content, same topics that we were trying to talk to families about. And the end, when we were writing up the insights, the pain points that Spanish dominant families raised were really different than the pain points that English dominant families raised in that same community. But one of the very first things they said was, no one has ever done this for us before. No one has ever asked us in our language and given us some space to be in community and talk about what our needs are. We get the unidirectional communications, right? We get the Spanish language text or the Spanish language email, but not an actual time to sit down and say, let's talk about what your experience is. And for them, it made them feel more connected to their community and like their voice mattered more. And it sounds so simple when we say it out loud, but I can't tell you how many communities we support where we have that experience over and over again because they haven't used language as one of the lenses to support their DEI work. And I want to jump in there because I think that there's a whole lot to unpack in that simple statement, right? And I think talk about Lafayette and, and the French language being still fairly prominent to some degree from a generational perspective in New Orleans. We were all French speakers, but it, we lost that connection a few generations before. And we lost the language, but we didn't lose the lifestyle. And so in many ways, although the language changed, and although one can argue whether New Orleans is speaking English or not, these days, uh, we're definitely speaking our own patois. The, the, you know, we didn't necessarily lose, lose that connection to the language. And you're talking about how language can be a placeholder for culture yeah. or your ability to think and speak in a different language or more importantly, listen in yes. a different language can allow you to build different narratives. And I joke all the time. I may have joked with you before studying French in school. At some point, you get to the subjunctive tense and the French struggle with subjunctive. Americans struggle with subjunctive. I felt like a black person. My whole life was in a subjunctive. Like this irreal tense, I've, I've mastered the subjunctive. I know how to speak about fictional tenses and, and moods where things happen only if you wish to happen, right? I would love just for you to unpack a little bit more how that connection from a language perspective and speaking a different language and connecting to a different culture gives you an opening to the world and an opening to yourself. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So before Beloved, you know this, Darren, I started a network of language immersion international baccalaureate schools. And one of the things that was very apparent when we were doing our early outreach for school recruitment, both on the employee side and on the student and family side, was that because I spoke another language, because I raised my children in another language, I had a way to talk to our students and families about what it feels to be marginalized because of your language experience. And even though I don't have a, a story of immigration, right, our family has been here for 250, 300 years, um, at least I do understand what it's like to lose language, to have other people criticize and question your choice of language with your family, to have other professionals actually discourage you from speaking your language with your family in your home, and what that starts to do to us psychologically, what it starts to mean when young people are translating for adults in very adult situations because their family didn't have the access and because the place that they're visiting, whether it's a school or a hospital, doesn't have anyone who speaks their language and can help the family. And so it made space for us to bridge this divide between your Black, your white, and your other and immigrant experience and say, actually, we actually have a lot of things in common when we look at this, the language lens and the ways that 
understanding another language, understanding someone else's perspective can help you either build a bridge or burn a bridge. And it came up for us often in that space in St. Louis. I think there's also a way in which as we're building our work at Beloved, we still take that perspective that says we can do all of this work in English. But when we get down to like, what is at the core of white supremacy culture? What does it mean to be anti-Black? How does anti-Blackness show up for us in the U.S.? How does anti-Blackness show up in Brazil? How does it show up in France? How does it show up in Colombia? How does it show up in Haiti and Dominican Republic? Like, these are global concepts, right? We were all impacted by colonialization. We were all impacted by white supremacy. And the opportunity to then say this conversation um, and the work that we have for equity long term actually has to be a global conversation. So not only saying, yes, we can facilitate things in two languages, we can have discussions with folks in multiple languages across our team, but now also starting to build really specific tools in multiple languages to use with our clients and partners, right? When we think about the work that we do to support other language immersion communities or dual language communities, particularly for equity in schools, one of the pain points that administrators will raise is, you know, because of the nature of our school, every three to five years, all of our teaching staff changes. It's really hard to build critical mass because we have so many teachers who are here on short-term visas. So it's hard for us to build this momentum towards equity and have enough of this shared analysis. And when they find out that I speak French, they're like, well, Rhonda, can you just come? Can you come and train all of our teachers and do this work? And you're a Black woman who speaks French and you're from this country. I'm like, yes, I could absolutely do that. And it's not a scalable response for you. It's not a sustainable response for you. So what we decided to do was to build this online course series and translate it into the top five languages of language immersion programs in the U.S. To say, okay, you can now have something where your English language teachers and your French and your Spanish and your Brazilian Portuguese and your Mandarin and your Cantonese speakers can all be doing this work in their language, right? That's deeply personal. That's deeply painful at times and not have to be translating it into another language in their head or thinking this is an American problem. This is, and I'm here to help support these Americans who are trying to understand race and equity and not making a connection to what it actually means in their home country, right? You may not have a lot of Black people in your experience in your country, but anti-Blackness is still there. And how do you start to understand who has been marginalized in your home country and how that impacts the ways that you see young Black children in the schools that you work with when you come to the U.S.? I think that's a perspective that because I, not just because I'm bilingual, but because I've had this experience in school communities and multilingual school communities for a while, it's a unique lens on the way that we approach our work at Beloved. Yeah, it's real powerful as well. I think this ability to, I mean, you talk about this idea of making sure that the language, in some ways, you're able to meet people where they are from a language perspective, but you're also able to learn from them. And I'm sure you have some expectations how the work and the assessments and all of those things may evolve differently based on the language differences uh, and how you may be able to capture things culturally that you couldn't do otherwise. Yes, we're really excited about that, right? Like what might it look like? And this will probably be like five years before we have all this data, but what would it look like to understand the experience of Taiwanese Americans who have been in the U.S. for two generations and are working in Cantonese majority communities in comparison to their peers in Taiwan who have stayed on the island and are still working for national companies? Right? Are their experiences of belonging and inclusion the same? Or are they different? And how are they different? Or what does it look like if I work for a multinational company that's based in Taiwan, headquartered in Taiwan, but has a North America office? 
right? Is my experience in the North America office different than my experience in the headquarters office? We're super, super geeked out about what that's going to look like in a few years. As you should be. It's hella interesting and hella powerful as well. And I do want to transition a bit. Um, You talked so much about language and how language in many ways shapes connection and community and, and all those things. And something that really is obvious as you talk about the work as well is a love for the communities that you serve, a love for equity, that love and that joy that you talked about in, in the very beginning, how that shapes the work itself. And you've spoken in the past about just the importance of centering love and how we approach our work. What does that mean and look like for you? It is absolutely non-negotiable. And one of the things that we think about all the time at Beloved is how we have to center ourselves in first that self-love and how it allows us to then reach out in love. There is this Asada Shakur quote that we reference probably in every facilitation or the start of every engagement where she says, we need to be weapons of mass construction, weapons of mass love. It's not enough to change the system. We need to change ourselves. And that construct, right, that we are actually building something new and no shade to abolitionists, right? There are lots of systems that we need to absolutely abolish and take down. At Beloved, we are focused on what are we building in its place? The folks who are going to be responsible for building what the new is still have their own work to do. We have got to absolutely meet them in love so they can build with this new paradigm, build into this into this structure or concept or infrastructure that we've never experienced before. And we deeply believe that if you're doing that in love and really thinking about who has been consistently marginalized in your experiences, you're going to build something radically different, right? To me, I think the greatest travesty of any of this work would be we get more black and brown faces in power. We get more queer folks and recent immigrants and multilingual folks in power, and they continue marginalizing our uh, unhoused population. They continue marginalizing our gender non-binary, gender non-conforming loves. They continue marginalizing our folks whose English isn't good enough or who lack the respectability in the way that they present themselves, right? We're seeing this play out in some municipal elections right now. That is not enough. It's not enough to have your Black face up here, sir. You actually need to really deeply understand what it means to meet us in love if you're going to build some policies and structures that get us all into safe and effective housing, that get us into stronger public health care, that get us into stronger education. And I have to stop you there because there's so much to unpack and we might unpack this at another point over cocktails. But there's something to be said about this concept really of so many of us have been able to integrate, for lack of a better word, spaces and find ourselves in powerful places. And there's a decision that one makes at that point, whether you're going to use that positionality to integrate and assimilate into where you are, or are you going to use that positionality to change the folks that are there and getting them to think more openly about the space. So that's one marker I would love for you to talk on. How do you use your positionality as a way of bringing people around and and changing them from a thinking perspective? I think the other, which is a really powerful one as well, and this is one where I think it's And we're just in a really interesting moment where people of color have greater positionality in conversations than we had easily five or 10 years ago. What happens when all of your power has come from punching up and all you know how to do is deconstruct? And what a power move it is to talk about what you're building and how do you leverage that opportunity to build something powerful and beautiful? But also, how do you empower folks to know that they can build? They just don't have to tear things down. They can build well. Uh, Those are just two points that I would love for you to speak on if any of that resonates. 
Absolutely. So the first piece I think about, one, it doesn't have to be linear. How I may show up at 12, at 20, at 35, at 85 might look really differently based on how my own learning journey is going and how my own love of self and center of self is evolving. So I don't want anybody to think, oh yeah, I'm on a straight line and at some point I'm going to hit this enlightened space. And for me personally, there was, I like, not accidentally, but I started locking my hair in 1994 after my first trip to France. So I had a perm until I was 19 and we're going to France and it's like, well, who's going to perm my hair in this small town of France? And the answer is nobody, in case you're wondering. So all the black girls who were going on the trip were like, okay, so what are you going to do? And so one girl was bringing her hot comb, but the only person who had ever pressed her hair was her grandmother. And we're like, we have to learn how to press your hair. Somebody else got braids. I did two strand twists. We're like, you know, <laughs> like we're going to figure something out, right? Don't make me hurt you, Jocelyn, with this hot comb. But coming back, I was like, mama, I think I want to do this. And my family thought I was crazy. My grandmother said, baby, you should just let your good hair grow back. But I started this lock journey in 1994. And so it meant that my entire professional career, I have had this, I've created this very visible response in people, right? In the 90s, there were no hair magazines talking about how to lock your hair for women or here are some cute lock styles. Like it was a real bushy lock fest. And I had this nose ring and I started coloring my hair in 96, probably coloring my locks in 96. So I go out into the job market and my friends actually ask, they're like, well, what are you going to do about your locks? And I'm like, there's nothing I can't do. This is my hair, right? I'm going to wear it because I'm going to the job interview as myself. And my perspective was, if you really can't process what I look like physically, you're not actually ready for the analysis I'm going to bring into the classroom. You're not ready for my pedagogy. You're not ready for the ways I want to engage young people in their own power. And by having that, it really did mean that I was able to commit myself to learning environments where I got that kind of support. I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to mix words. And then fast forward 2007, I started working on opening these schools in St. Louis. And here I am with my wife and my two kids and dared those people to say anything to me. And like, okay, we're going to have a black lesbian running an elementary school. You sure are. And here are my children. And here's our community. And here's our network. And here's what we stand for right? Here's what it means for us to be able to say to all of these wildly different types of families that we're recruiting, yes, we're going to treat every grandmother who comes to the door to enroll their grandbabies in school with as much love and reverence as we would for the CEO of whatever company, because I have that personal lived experience of growing up with my grandmother. This matters. We're going to be able to treat our same-sex couple families the same. We're going to be able to treat our families who have limited English and high fluency in other languages with the same type of respect and care and community and support them. And I think the sooner you get to that resolve for yourself, the easier it is to then turn that into some advocacy, no matter what type of work you do, but advocacy for other people, because it creates some, not just empathy, but there is some political cover that happens, right? I remember very clearly having a supervisor who, when I was being attacked for offering free uh, professional development around how to support LGBTQ students and families, I had an assistant superintendent attack the work and attack me personally. And my supervisor was like, here is what we're going to do. Here's how this person is going to behave. And 
here are the moves that we're going to make politically. Here's how we're going to protect you. Here's how we're going to get the training and provide these supports for everyone in our school because we can control that. We can't control what she does in that central office. And so learning how to leverage that power, how to provide that cover made a huge difference for me, both as an educator and then over time as a leader in these industries. And now I forgot what the second question was. I mean, the second question, we can get back to it at another point, because I think that you just jumped into a lot there that I want to unpack a little bit more. One of my favorite quotes is Zora Neale Hurston. In her ever flippant way, commented, it was funny how gods always behave like the people who created them. And if you replace God with systems and institutions, that's a whole dissertation that I really hope somebody's writing. And so, I mean, you've already started digging into this and even answered to some degree, but, you know, queer Black leader, how do you celebrate self as a means of operating from a place of love? And how do you project onto the world the love and grace that you've internalized in a way that is both selfish and selfless? I mean, I think you're saying it right now. It is actually in the fabric. It is actually in the breath. It is in the way that we greet people. Sometimes my team members will say, Rhonda, I couldn't tell if this was someone you just met or somebody you've known for 30 years based on how you greeted them. And so I don't always know how to navigate afterwards. I'm like, why should it matter? I mean, I'm going to greet you in love because we are humans sharing this experience and who doesn't need more love today? And I think there is a very clear imperative to understand what that breath feels like, what it's like to lower your shoulders because you stop being defensive. You stop bracing yourself. You stop trying to dodge the microaggression. And someone just saw you. They saw you in your humanity and you got a chance to respond from that. It is absolutely the thread that connects the way that I live and the type of work that I choose to do and the way that I approach that work. So if we're talking about having the conversation with three-year-olds or 13-year-olds or 30-year-olds, we can meet them all in love. I think there is a a way in which when I look back at my own leadership trajectory, the times when I was most scared and probably made the most types of leadership mistakes was when I couldn't show up as my full self, right? When I was trying to align myself, you talked about integration assimilation earlier. There was definitely times when I was like, well, I need to go buy a suit because I showed up at this event and I'm the only woman in the room and all these men have on gray suits. And I was like, well, bet, let me go to the mall and find a gray suit. So the next event, I look like everybody else in the room and spent years suiting up. I think it's how I started drinking bourbon because I went to some event and after the official thing was over, all the men are at the bar drinking a bourbon. I was like, well, y'all not going to play me, whatever he's having, I'll have the same drink. And to then get to the space where it's like, I actually don't have to do that. I don't have to look like you. I don't have to show up in this space like you and can wear whatever I feel like and still be respected because I'm respecting myself in it. I had to learn that. Totally, 100%. I think there's, you know, I repeat all the time the quote from my uncle Renard, but you know, as I went off to school, he's reminding me that you're not going to be white people at being white, but you can beat them at being black, right? And so at some point you have to figure out how you're going to le- leverage your assets. And, you know, I always found it hilarious when I was in Memphis and folks would be like, I just, you're just out. And I was like, what else am I going to be? Like, I can't, I can't. What, what else are you going to be? Like, that's so much work. Like, how? Have they met you? I mean, I hide come on. Like, what? They're going to catch these colors. Hide your right? kids, hide your wives. Look. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I think there's something to be said about how do you live into that identity in a way that's powerful and meaningful. We're coming into closing out. Our time is almost up that quickly. How about that? Oh, we need more time together. Yeah, we can do that. We can definitely set that up for sure. I do think there's a something I wanted to give you space for. I know that you, you know, had spent so much time with the one good question. I would love to hear where that is and where you're going with that. 
Yes. So one good question is a blog series I started in 2015, really out of my own curiosity. I like I had lots of things that I wanted to learn about and didn't have any specific answer or end game, right? I didn't have a like, this is my theory and I'm trying to get everyone to answer my question and prove me right. And it meant that I got to just spend time talking with really fabulous, intelligent people from 11, 12 different countries about my question. And then by extension, what they were doing and how they were experiencing their own work in their own lives. And so my question at the time was focused on investments and how do we understand our investments in education as a reflection of our belief about how youth will lead in the next generation. And we heard some of everything from all different types of perspectives. So fast forward, 2022, the book One Good Question is coming out uh, this spring. And I'm really excited about what conversation it starts to raise for folks now about the questions that we ask and how they will compel us to different answers. Look forward to reading that. And I want to close out with one of the questions I had a a mentor, and by mentor, I mean therapist, a great one many years ago, (laughs) who, you know, in a dark spot that sometimes hope comes from experience. And I would love to have you close this out by sharing what are things that you're hopeful about, things to come. And what experiences have provoked that hope? Oh, beautiful. You know, the kids are all right. There is, I have a lot of hope in the ways that this current generation is just completely challenging all of the respectability, completely challenging the false expectations for how they show up, right? So from high pop culture examples of a Lil Nas X and Naomi Osaka saying, this is who I am, this is what I need. And if you need my talent, you're going to have to respect my wishes as well. And how it's just shifting the ways that our young people center themselves and fight for themselves. We know that this is building on generations of struggle and building on generations of self-actualization. But I am really most hopeful for how they will continue to push on our norms, on our societal expectations within Black community and across different communities, right? Like we have our own work to do as Black people. And I think that with youth like this at the fore, they're going to force us to have some different conversations and different reckoning. It's great to hear that. We definitely have our own work to do, but these kids are free and that counts for a lot. They really are. They really are. And it's like, and like being a parent at this point is like, I'm raising these children to be wildly free and I don't even know what it's going to turn into for them, right? Like I look at them with wonder sometimes, like who are you going to be? Because you don't have any of this baggage that we had to wind our way through. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you, friend, for your time. Thank you, friend. I appreciate you. Keep doing all the good work and we'll talk again soon. Love you. Love you too. At some point in this very long pandemic, I was lucky enough to reread Jean Tuma's Harlem Renaissance novel, Kane. I didn't seek it out. It was sitting right there on the bookshelf one day when I glanced over from Netflix. How I got there is a bit of a mystery. The first and only time I'd read it before was sophomore year of high school when my wonderfully worldly white English teacher at my very white high school presented it during a full two-month lesson on the Harlem Renaissance. During that lesson, as was the norm, Kane was presented as a Harlem Renaissance anomaly. At a time when most Black writers were writing in lyrical praise of the urban North that Black Americans were fleeing to in masses, here comes Kane, crafting a beautiful depiction of the pastoral American South. Toomer caught heat for writing Kane, criticized for manicizing Southern oppression and writing what folks deemed as a work of false pride. They accused of him trying to make the great migrators long for the toxic world they were leaving behind. 
But what became perfectly clear as I reread Kane's brilliant collection of vignettes and poetry and prose is that it's Toomer's love letter to Black joy. Toomer wasn't writing to glorify the oppression Black Americans were leaving behind. He was writing to remind us of the joy we were taking with us, a joy that had been cultivated in defiance of the oppressive American narrative in which we'd been typecast as the victim. He was reminding us of the immeasurable wealth that this joy offered up and that this joy was a gift to be celebrated. I am thankful for that joy, a defiant manifestation of an internal optimism born from generations of struggle, unwavering faith, and unquestioned conviction that in the end, right will win. And if it ain't one, then it ain't the end. And I'm so thankful for Rhonda and others who are our generation's joy bearers, for the joy they share so generously and the love with which they carry out the work, all such beautiful manifestations of a multi-generational legacy. Y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridge Band-supported Studio Pod Media production. A special shout-out to our show producer, the wonderful Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge thank you to my ever-brilliant Bridge Band production team and family, Cora Daniels, Michael Borger, Christina Pistorius, and Britt Savage. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.